With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 85, A Clash of Princes. Today, we have a conundrum to resolve. The kingship of Egypt is in dispute, and the country is teetering on the edge of a civil war. The winner, when he emerged, did so by some surprising methods. Today's episode is brought to you by George Wood and Megan Thomas. Folks, thank you for supporting the show with your contribution. May Bastet bring you plenty and protect you from snakes. The year was 1418 BCE, approximately. It was a year of mourning for a great king, Amunhotep II, had passed away, leaving the mortal realm for the kingdom of the dead. Worse, the pharaoh had failed to make his choice of successor clear. So without a path to follow, Egyptians of the royal court were forced to decide amongst themselves. As you can imagine, this kind of choice was a rather dangerous one. The late pharaoh had fathered many children during his life. There were at least eight sons and two or more daughters. A smorgasbord of children who filled the palace with life and gave the king a variety of options for the succession. Had he made a definitive choice... Amunhotep II would have been assured of his legacy and the endurance of his household. As it stood, though, things were a lot more precarious. Out of the ten-plus children, there were two princes who stood above the rest. Both of these sons were physically mature, and both had spent some time outside of the palace, learning about their royal responsibilities. They were also politicised, with allies and supporters gathered around them to help push forward their claim to the throne. We can put together these two factions with a little bit of guesswork. You see, once the winner emerged, they went about removing the loser from the historical record. So by looking at figures who have been erased around this time, and those who haven't, we can get a sense of who might have been on each side. Now, I have to stress, this is all very tentative. But we'll try not to let gaps in history ruin a good story. So with that caveat in mind, let's meet our princes and their teams. In the blue corner, there was the elder son. His name was Amunhotep, like his father. In order to keep them separate, I refer to this prince as Amunhotep Sem. Amunhotep Sem was a capable prince, about 22 years old. He already had experience working as a priest and working in the royal stables. Apparently, his experience had helped him gain the trust, respect, and appreciation of his father. According to records left from this period, Amunhotep Sem was one who, quote, 
enters before his father without being announced. In other words, the prince was given privileged and unrestricted access to the pharaoh Amunhotep II. For someone looking to take power for himself one day, that kind of closeness must have been immensely valuable, in prestige terms if nothing else. Amunhotep Sem also enjoyed the status of holding political and administrative office. We know, for instance, that he was a Sem priest, a type of priest involved in funerals and mortuary rituals. He was also a chief master of horses, meaning close involvement with the royal stables and the chariots. This was useful training. Not only was experience with chariots and battle manoeuvres supremely important for a future pharaoh, this kind of opportunity would also have put Amunhotep Sem in touch with soldiers and officers of the royal army. In other words, it gave him connections to the military class and helped him to bolster his claim to the throne as an experienced military official. Finally, Amunhotep Sem had a strong position thanks to his credentials within the government itself. According to some papyrus fragments from around this period, an 18th dynasty prince named Amunhotep was working as an official in the very important town called Peru Nefer. We have visited Peru Nefer, or Good Travels, before. It was the port slash garrison slash trading post in the northeast of the country. It was at Peru Nefer that trading ships, soldiers, and vessels of the royal fleet began their journeys up to Canaan, to Syria, Cyprus, and Crete. It was a very important town, basically, so for Prince Amunhotep to show up here suggests that he was being educated in the crucial affairs of the royal state. Now, full disclosure, there is still some debate about whether these papyrus fragments actually refer to Prince Amunhotep Sem. After all, Amunhotep was a very common name for royal princes, and there were at least four kings of this name in the 18th dynasty. So how can we be certain that it's Amunhotep Sem? Well, we're not. But a couple of factors do weigh in the favour of this prince. First and foremost, the town of Peru Nefer actually began to decline in prominence after the death of King Amunhotep II. This gives us a sort of finishing line for royal activity here. If a prince was at Peru Nefer, it was probably before the death of that pharaoh. So that helps anchor us in time a little bit. Secondly, and this one is very helpful, we are fairly confident that Prince Amunhotep's political faction counted among its members none other than the governor of Peru Nefer. Let me reintroduce to you the overseer Ken Amun. Ken Amun, or Amun Ken, depending on whom you read, was a prominent member of the northern government. We met him back in episode 79, where he was overseeing the agriculture, trade, and military garrison of this region. Ken Amun was friends with the king, and had earned an esteemed place in Egyptian society. He built a lovely tomb at Thebes, which he filled with beautiful scenes of life in the Nile Delta. He was a rich and powerful man, and he was certainly a very valuable ally. Prince Amunhotep Sem needed the support of men like Ken Amun. No king, even a pharaoh, rules by personality alone, and with the court divided over which prince to elevate, 
the friendship of a governor with Ken Amun's prestige was a big win. Along with this, we can assume that there were members of the army or the officer corps, and the northern administration. Also, Prince Amunhotep's experience in the priesthood probably gave him some allies at the temples. So this was a very good start. The prince had military, administrative, and clerical support. But even they paled a bit in comparison to Amunhotep's most prominent ally. Although it was nice to have these government officials on his side, the prince's strongest friend, his ace in the hole, might have been his own grandmother. The dowager queen Meritre Hatshepsut seems to have been one of the linchpins of his operation. Now, Queen Meritre was an extremely influential figure. At this time, she was about 58 years old, and had been one of Egypt's supreme matriarchs for about 42 years. As you can imagine, she was a force to be reckoned with. Apart from being the grandmother of this prince, Queen Meritre was also the great royal wife at this time. In other words, she was the official Queen of Egypt, even during the reign of her son, Amunhotep II. Now, we got into the logic behind this back in episode 84, but it bears repeating that Queen Meritre was one of, perhaps the most, influential figure apart from the late pharaoh. Why she gave her support to Amunhotep Sem, and not to his half-brother Tutmos, is unclear. I can only assume there was some kind of backroom dealing, or even just personal assessment, that made her feel that Amunhotep Sem was a better candidate overall. As we have seen, this was a fairly logical conclusion. So Prince Amunhotep Sem had some powerful backing. He had his grandmother, Queen Meritre, the governor of Perunefer, Ken Amun, and assorted members of the priesthood in Memphis, also members of the army. It was a strong coalition, with most sectors of the royal government represented in some form. So, as the struggle for power began, Amunhotep Sem was in a very strong position. Over in the red corner, the other contender for the throne was the prince named Tutmose. Now, Tutmose is a curious case, because he has far fewer surviving records than his elder brother. A little bit survives, but not much. Which begs the question, why exactly was he in the running? Compared to his brother, Prince Tutmose did not have much in the way of administration or political credentials. As far as we can tell, he lived a more secluded upbringing. For instance, he donated a small statue to the Temple of Karnak during his youth. This statue was given to the mother goddess Mut, and it reads, quote, That Mut may give life, prosperity, and health to the car spirit of the king's son, the one whom the lord of the two lands loves, Tutmose. Pretty standard stuff, and it tells us nothing about him personally. That being said, donating a statue to Karnak might suggest that the prince was, you know, living down in Thebes. If his elder brother was powerful in the north, maybe Tutmose was sent down to the south. Kind of a covering-your-bases situation. The late pharaoh could not send one son everywhere, so why not send different boys off to different regions for their education? At the very least, it would increase the visibility of the royal household. This little statue to Moot, the mother, 
also touches on another question about this prince. You see, his mummy survives to this day, and this body suggests that the young man was not particularly healthy. According to a forensic study of Tutmose's body, the prince was a frail man. The earliest examinations described him as, quote, extremely emaciated. Coupled with a certain literary reference from this prince's life, it has been proposed that young Tutmose, about 18 years old, was suffering from the condition epilepsy. Imagine, if you will, a young prince. He is sickly, thin, and prone to episodic seizures or spells. He survives childhood and matures into a young man. Inevitably, he, or those who care for him, start to seek some kind of political influence. As a result, the prince is sent to Thebes to spend time in the temples, learn what he can, and remain safely out of the way. The problem was, Tutmose and those who cared for him had plans of their own. Tutmose's faction in the struggle for power was remarkably strong given what we know of his physical health. For starters, there was his mother, Tia. Tia was the widow of Amunhotep II. She was a princess of the realm and an influential woman. Naturally, Tia was not supporting anyone else. When the time came, she threw her weight fully behind her son. In the long run, this may have cost her dearly. Apart from the royal wife, Tia, Prince Totmos was also backed by his childhood tutor, His tutor was a courtier who had trained the young man and other princes in various matters. This was a man named Heka Reshu. Heka Reshu shows up a couple of times in this era, mostly in the guise of tutoring royal children. He doesn't seem to have been too prominent, but his motivation was pretty clear. If Tutmos somehow was successful, Heka Reshu could expect that the prince would take his old tutor into prosperity with him. On the other hand, Prince Amunhotep Sem probably had little to no relationship with Heka Reshu. There is no reference to these two having any association. So, when the chips began to line up, the loyalty of that official was pretty secure. Unfortunately, the support of a princess and the support of a tutor weren't going to take Tutmos very far. Up against his brother's assets, including the Queen Mother Meritre, these two supporters were okay, but nothing to write home about. So what was Tutmose's ace in the hole? What was his secret weapon that would enable him to contend with his much more experienced brother? Like I said, Tutmose probably spent quite a bit of his youth down in the city of Thebes. There he would have learned religious lessons at the Temple of Karnak, and perhaps been apprenticed to some officials in the state in order to learn some day-to-day administration. Along the way, Tutmos began to associate with the local politicians, and this is where he found his secret weapon. The ace in the hole for Tutmos's campaign was a man named Amun M. Opet. Amun M. Opet was the royal vizier of the south, kind of the prime minister of Upper Egypt. He was an influential and powerful man, especially in the city of Thebes and the territories of the south. He was an immensely valuable ally. It seems that the vizier attached his star to Tutmos as soon as he learned of the late pharaoh's death. Amunemopet had been an associate in politics and in friendship with Amunhotep II. Now, 
We don't know too much about his association with Tutmos, but it does seem that the vizier joined up with his faction. How do we know this? Well, in order to explain that, we first have to explore the actual contest which went down between these two princes. We now come to the crux of this episode, the battle royale between Tutmos and Amunhotep Sem for the kingship of the Nile Valley. Who emerged as the victor? We'll see in just a moment. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. The Royal Rumble that went down in 1418 BCE never, as far as we can tell, turned into an actual civil war. If it did, the winner managed to remove that from the historical record so effectively that we have absolutely no hint of a major military clash. For now, it seems as though the struggle was decided politically, faction versus faction in the halls of the palace. Conversations and friendships were the rules of this game, and when the winner finally emerged, the blood on his hands was that of family, not of the people. So, who did win? Well, I could string that out for you, but I won't. The result was clear and decisive, and in the context, it wasn't really that surprising. On the one hand, you had Prince Amunhotep, experienced and backed by powerful family members. On the other, you had Prince Tutmos, sickly, and backed only by minor members of the royal palace. It should come as no surprise that the winner of this struggle was Tutmos. Okay, it was a little bit surprising, but let me explain. Prince Tutmos, inexperienced and possibly epileptic, should have barely rated a mention in this struggle. Going into the fray, he was woefully low on rank, and his known confederates are far less prestigious than those of his rival. But, this prince did win, and when the struggle was over, it was Tutmos, not Amunhotep, who would be the next king of Egypt. Why? The answer to that question is complicated, but fascinating. To explore it, I need to tell you a story. A story of how Tutmos found his destiny, and gained the power that he desired. More importantly, it's a story of how the prince's strongest ally was not in fact human, but stone. Let me explain how Tutmos became king thanks to the efforts of the Great Sphinx. One day, in early 1418 BCE, Prince Tutmos was in the royal palace near the city of Memphis. He had come north from Thebes for one simple reason. His father, Amunhotep II, was dying. Now, the royal son, about 18 years old, and sickly to some degree, was in the middle of a rapidly deteriorating situation. 
Whether he was close with his father or not, the prince was in a palace filled with scheming, as the royal family and their allies tried to figure out who the next heir was. It was a poisonous environment, I'm sure. The young man, sensitive and ill-disposed, needed a break. Tutmose decided to go for a ride. He ordered his servants to fetch a chariot and hitch up the horses. Then he clambered up and held onto the cart while his driver steered the chariot out, out of the palace, out into the desert, out for a much-needed sojourn. This was an episode he described in a text. Quote, When his majesty, Tutmose, was but a stripling like Horus in his youth, his beauty was like that of the god. Indeed, Tutmose seemed like the god himself. Behold, the prince did a thing which pleased him upon the highlands of Memphis. Upon its northern and southern road, he hunted lions and wild goats, coursing about in his chariot. His horses were swifter than the wind. End quote. Now Tutmose, the possibly epileptic, but definitely emaciated young prince, was probably not quite the same level of athlete that his father was. The descriptions of hunting and riding at great speed are more about building up an image than actual truth. It's where the prince's tale continues that things start to get really interesting. The roads on which Tutmose travelled that day went up to the desert plateau near Giza. The prince rode here in a direct imitation of his father and grandfather, both of whom had left propaganda describing their joy rides around this area. Of course, there is every chance that Tutmose's story itself is 90% propaganda, but for the sake of understanding the prince's mind, I'm going to temporarily take him at his word. So, Tutmose went riding about Giza. He looked at the great pyramids of Khufu and Khafre, and the lesser monument of Menkaure, edifices that were now more than 1,200 years old. Standing before these structures, Tutmose may have felt the same as you or I might feel before the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, the great mosque of Samara, or the Angkor Wat in Cambodia. The feeling of monuments built long ago, but still part of a living tradition, one which impacts the minds of those who view them. For Tutmose, the site of the Giza monuments must have been a powerful reminder of what he was a part of, more importantly, what he was striving for. Tutmose says that he became weary with the spectacle he was seeing, and desired to take a rest. As he and his driver rode down from the Giza plateau, the prince felt exhaustion taking over him. The driver steered them down from the monuments towards the river Nile. Down here there was shade and the air was cooler, a good place to stop and take a breather. Tutmose, exhausted from the ride, hopped off at an appropriate moment and lay down in some shade. The spot he chose was in the shadow of the Great Sphinx. At this time, the Sphinx of Khafre was the object of great veneration in the region of Memphis. King Amunhotep II had erected a stela here, and commissioned a shrine for worshippers to make offerings to the great god Re. The Sphinx itself was associated with the sun god, and was even referred to as hor em or Horus in the Horizon, which is one of the associated epithets of the great Ray. This was a respected monument, an emblem of great kings, and of the creator god himself. 
For the son of Amunhotep II, it was also a good place to rest. Although the Sphinx was venerated, it wasn't necessarily well maintained. Twelve hundred years of wind, dust, and gritty sand had eroded the stone, and despite restorations in the Twelfth Dynasty, the monument was weathered and damaged. More importantly, it was at least half buried in sand. Tutmos lay down in the shadow of the Sphinx, and soon he was fast asleep. As he went into a deep rest, Tutmos found himself dreaming. In the dream, he saw a vision. Quote, One of those days, it came to pass that the king's son Tutmos came riding at the time of midday. He rested in the shadow of this great god, the monument, the Sphinx. A vision of sleep seized the prince when the sun was at its zenith, and he found that the majesty of this great god, the Sphinx, was speaking to him. The Sphinx said to the prince, Behold me, see me, my son Totmos, I am thy father, Hor em Aket, Atum Re manifesting. It is I who will give to you my kingdom on earth, at the head of the ones who are living. You shall wear the white crown and the red crown on the throne, the hereditary prince. The land shall be thine in its length and breadth, that which the eye of the Lord of all, the sun, shines upon. The food of the two lands shall be thine, the tribute of all countries, and the duration of many years in life and rule. End quote. This is one of those outstanding, remarkable stories from the ancient Egyptian kingdom. There aren't many tales quite like this. The Sphinx, in his guise of Horus in the horizon, appeared before Totmos in a dream. His splendor filled the eyes of the awestruck prince as he slept in the shadow of the great monument. At midday, the peak of the sun's daytime journey, and its power, Atum Re himself manifested through the Sphinx and spoke directly to the prince in his dream. Tutmos was given a very simple message. The Sphinx came to Tutmos with a promise, a promise of absolute power, of rule over all. But this promise was attached to a condition. Quote, the Sphinx said, My face, Tutmos, is your face, and my heart is towards thee. You shall be to me as a protector, for I am like one who is aged. Tutmos, the sand of the desert on which I stand has reached my body. Turn to me, O Tutmos, do that which I desire, for thou art my son and my protector. End quote. What the Sphinx was getting at was simple. The desert sands blowing eastward had accumulated around its body. Twelve hundred years after its construction, the Sphinx was largely buried in the dust and sand of the Sahara Desert. For the avatar of a great god, this was not acceptable. So the Sphinx turned to one whom he believed could help him. Prince Totmos was given a simple task. Clear the sand away from the Sphinx, and restore the body of this great god. If he did this, the Sphinx would give to Totmos the power of the king of Egypt. As you can imagine, Totmos awoke from his dream, filled with purpose, and set off back towards the palace. We're not told the end of this story, because at this point the stone stealer on which Tutmos carved it breaks off, so we're missing the end of the tale. 
but it's really not hard to figure out. Prince Tutmos gathered a team of labourers and had them set to work on clearing the sphinx of its sandy burial. Over several days, working tirelessly, the peasants helped this great monument re-emerge into the sun. After some time, it was clear once more, and the sphinx stood free of its desert shackles. I have seen Egyptian work teams in action clearing sand, and if you have enough people and get a good rhythm going, the process can go surprisingly quickly. Assuming Tutmos got together, say, 30 to 50 able-bodied men, it would only be the work of a few days to clear the sand away from the body of the Sphinx. Now, it wouldn't be perfect, not clean in an archaeological sense, but it would be clear enough that the body of the monument was visible and free once more. So assuming that Tutmos indeed experienced this vision one sunny day, it is not impossible to suppose that within a week he had achieved the goal that the Sphinx had given him. With the promise fulfilled, the Sphinx, or Horus in the horizon, gave back what he had promised. Tutmos became the new heir. If this turn of events seems confusing at all, worry not. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, just because you clear some sand doesn't automatically make you fit to be a king. What did manual labour ever have to do with administration and governments? Well, therein lies the question. More than anything else, Prince Tutmose's project was a symbolic one. He was making a gesture of the utmost piety, showing his dedication to great gods and tradition by restoring the work of past kings. On top of that, he was helping to build on the work done by his father. If Amunhotep II had commissioned a shrine at the site of the Sphinx, Prince Tutmose added to that by restoring the Sphinx itself. Secondly, we have to consider the symbolism of Tutmose's dream. Assuming, just for the moment, that the prince actually did go to sleep in the shadow of the monument, and actually did experience this vision, well, that was a powerful symbol to the ancient Egyptians. Dreams have power. Whether we acknowledge it or not, dreams influence our day-to-day thinking, and they shape our perceptions or memories in surprising ways. Even more importantly, Dreams have the power to impart knowledge. Not necessarily in a mystical way, but in the simple sense that while you are dreaming, your brain takes information that was mostly subconscious and turns it into something immediate, something visible. You know the cliché of a dream where you are falling, that somehow represents a period of stress or fear of death? It's that sort of principle in the ancient world. Obviously, I'm no neurologist, and I've only got the most bare-bones education in psychological theory, but it's not hard to see how the prince, having a dream of the great god himself, might have been rather shook up by his experience. Whether you read this as a divine vision, a simple dream, or even an epileptic seizure, which can actually involve images or visions, the dream of the Sphinx was probably an incredibly powerful moment for the young prince. More importantly, it was powerful to those around him. The ancient Egyptians took dreams seriously, and their priests spent a lot of time deciphering or interpreting them. In particular, dreams that involved communications from the gods were given the utmost credence by the ancients. I mean, if your god is trying to contact you, you don't just ignore that, do you? Belief was powerful, and dreams could communicate that belief with incredible force.
It's not hard to imagine that when Tutmos returned to the palace or the temple and spoke of the vision he had received, that the priests of Memphis were astonished by this revelation. Here, a sickly young prince was receiving the will of the Creator himself. What's more, the will of God manifested so clearly, a vision beneath the shadow of the Sphinx, delivered by ray in the horizon. For any priest of the region, especially those serving Ray, this must have seemed like the clearest possible message. The royal court may have been divided, but the god had clearly chosen his candidate. It was on this basis that Tutmos managed to make his bid for the throne successful. The decision to elevate Tutmos to power was probably not made quietly. As you can imagine, Amunhotep Sem and his grandmother Meritre were having none of it. No matter the vision, Prince Tutmos was inexperienced, and probably incapable. On top of that, he wasn't even the elder son. For heaven's sake, people, open your eyes. The kid's probably lying, for all we know. I can only assume, at this point, that Tutmos's driver was trotted out to testify that, yes, the prince had rested in the shadow of the Sphinx. And yes, he had slept restlessly, perhaps even spasming, as if in the embrace of a powerful vision. What's more, had Tutmos not gathered his workmen and cleared the Sphinx? Had he not demonstrated his piety? What did age or experience matter when the greatest task of a pharaoh was to uphold the will of the gods? Sure, Tutmos was young. Sure, he was frail. Sure, he was prone to episodes. But by Ray, he was the gods chosen. Opposition could not stand against the will of God, could it? It could not. It is at this moment in history that Prince Amunhotep Sem and his grandmother Meritre abruptly disappear from the historical record. We don't exactly know how this happened, but I think we can take a guess. It seems that in the space of a few short days or weeks, Prince Tutmos swept ahead of his rival and secured his victory. Within a short space of time, he was being crowned as the new pharaoh of Egypt. So, please join me, kneel before your king, and hail Tutmos IV. This brings us to the end of today's episode. The rest of this story properly belongs to the years of Tutmos IV's reign. Suffice to say, as we end our tale in mid to late 1418, the prince has now ascended to the throne of Egypt. Soon, he will take a public ruling name, he will bury his father's mummy in his tomb, and he will begin the work of ruling the kingdom. Ruling and honouring the great god whose power he had now received. Join me soon for episode 86, here on the History of Egypt podcast. See you soon! Hi again, just a couple small things before we go. 
As of October 2017, the podcast now features advertising on some episodes. Now this is part of our arrangement with Acast, who host the show for free in exchange for some light advertising. The advertising is a necessary but good way to supplement donations, help me pay for research materials, and allow me to spend a bit less time at the 9 to 5 and a bit more time writing this show. I am constantly chasing that golden age where I will get an episode out every week on schedule. Advertising will help me do that. Now I realize this is not ideal for everybody, so if you have any concerns or questions, please email me at egyptpodcast at gmail.com. I'm always looking for feedback and ways to improve the show. Also, on a related note, the History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which is a network devoted to intelligent, independent podcasts on a variety of subjects, in particular history, but a whole range of topics. Now, the Agora Podcast Network is interested in attracting new people to join us as advertisers. If you have a product or a service that you want to expand the word on, consider hosting or advertising with the Agora Podcast Network. We have just about a million downloads a month, and on a regular basis, we do collaborations which can increase the visibility of your product. So, consider advertising with Agora. As always, thanks for listening. Head on over to agorapodcastnetwork.com for more information. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.